Shalom, Salam, and welcome to the History of the Land of Israel podcast. I am Shael Ben Ephraim, and I welcome you to the one podcast with the guts to survey the most provocative historical narrative in the world. Episode 3, Dinosaurs and Fire. They say you should start any story at the beginning, and I plan to. I mean the very beginning. Technically, the story of the land of Israel begins with its physical creation. Here are two interpretations. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Stephen Hawking has a different interpretation of the beginning. In the very beginning, there was a void, a curious form of vacuum, a nothingness containing no space, no time, no matter, no light, no sound. Yet the laws of nature were in place, and this curious vacuum held potential. A story logically begins at the beginning, but this story is about the universe, and unfortunately, there is no data from the very beginning. None. Zero. We don't know anything about the universe until it reaches the mature age of a billionth of a trillionth of a second. That is some concise time after the creation in the Big Bang. When you read or hear anything about the birth of the universe, someone is making it up. We are in the realm of philosophy. Only God knows what happened at the very beginning. Of course, interestingly enough, Stephen Hawking and the Bible agree that God knows what happened in the very beginning. So how did this land get formed um, geologically? Well, the land we would later call Israel was formed during the Precambrian era. That was a time spanning from the creation of the earth about 4.6 billion years ago to roughly 600 million years in the past. To put this period into perspective, it covers 90% of the existence of the planet. During this period, the Middle East was positioned on the Norse-facing passive margin of Gondwana. What was Gondwana? It was a supercontinent comprising of Africa, India, Australia, Antarctica, and South America. It later, later merged with Laurasia, another supercontinent made up of most of today's Asia. The combination of these masses, along with others, created the unit of Pangaea. That was the last supercontinent in the planet's history, and the largest one, until it began to split apart 230 million years ago. It would break into the existing and familiar continental split when that newcomer, the Atlantic Ocean, split Pangaea apart into two. At that time, the land of Israel was covered with rocks, leading to its more recognizable geological formation. Because of its location near the edge of Gondwana, the land of Israel was covered in water throughout much of prehistory. It developed geologically through both the dry and oceanic periods. Finally, the land was topped off with alluvium, sand dunes, and playa deposits. But the development of Israel did not stop there. 539 to 251 million years ago, the northern and southern areas of the country started to become distinct. The north was typified by the presence of sandstone, dolomite, and mudstone, as well as the Um Ishrin sandstone substance. Meanwhile, the south was characterized by Ordovician age rocks in the Dissi sandstone formation. 251 million years ago, continuing until about 66 million years ago, limestone and volcanic rock 
appeared on the land. This is the Jurassic era, best known in popular culture for the appearance of dinosaurs. As the cliched descriptions go, dinosaurs roamed the Earth for 174 million years. Their existence ranges from about 260 million years ago to 66 million years before the present. So, basically, the entire Jurassic era. There is no question that dinosaurs lived in the land of Israel. Indeed, some fossils have been found. Most famously, the dinosaur tracks in Bedzait, a sleepy suburb of Jerusalem located in the forested foothills leading into the capital city. The finding consists of 800 square feet of bedrock, exposed, on which more than 200 three-pronged fork-like imprints are to be found. It is not completely clear which dinosaurs left the imprints. However, three different Jurassic creatures did so. We are very fortunate to have discovered the tracks left in the rock, uh, and that is because the sediment was soft and unconsolidated. Paleontologists could only identify one of the Jurassic creatures leaving the marks, and even that is not with a great degree of certainty. Why are there so few prints, and why are they hard to identify? Well, as mentioned, much of low-lying Israel was underwater in the Jurassic era. According to Professor Rivka Rabinovich of the Hebrew University, because of our location and the geological history here, we were underwater for a long time. Therefore, we have an abundance of animals that lived during the period of the dinosaurs, but in the sea. So there were lots of sea creatures here and fewer land animals than have been known to date. However, the dinosaur in question, though difficult to identify, was likely related to the two-legged Strophimimius. To me, that dinosaur looks like a maniacal ostrich. Indeed, if you doubt dinosaurs were related to birds, this specimen will dispel those doubts. They were among the most well-adapted and common dinosaurs, leading experts to conclude that they probably survived on a varied diet of plants and meat, therefore making it easier for them to survive when there was less of one and more of the other. If you look at pictures on Google of the Struthiomimus, you will see it running on dry land. However, one theory holds that when the dinosaurs left the print, that area may have been underwater. Indeed, that could account for the lack of any tail marks behind it. Now, I'm embarrassed to say that even though I've been to Bidzite on numerous occasions, I've never seen those storied prints. Uh, according to the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, the display conditions for these prints currently are not ideal. So here's the description. In the center of the Moshav, Bedzait, you first have to apply to the secretariat, ask the clerk there for the key, promise her that you'll be right back, and then open the lock and stand there gaping in amazement at a rock on which there are about 200 prints of a foot with three claws. Other aquatic species swam around underwater Israel as well, including the Mosasaurus. Despite the misleading name, these guys were not dinosaurs, but rather giant reptiles that dwelled in the ocean during the Jurassic era. These creatures could reach 46 feet in length and look to my untrained eye like a hybrid mutant combination of a dolphin and a bloodthirsty alligator. The remains of the Mosasaurus were found in Oron, which is located in the Negev Desert. As we all know, dinosaurs are now extinct. The leading theory as to why remains the classic one. 
A change occurred in the Earth's climate due to a meteor's fateful landing. The meteor, about the size of Mount Everest, landed in the Yucatan. Eventually, the changes that it wrought made life for all dinosaurs unsustainable, even in little old Israel. And now for a little note on oil. Now, today the Middle East area is incredibly rich in oil. Most notably, the Persian Gulf, or Arab Gulf, depending on who you ask, and the countries near it, starting from Syria all the way into uh, the Gulf. The area contains about 48% of the oil resources and 38% of the known natural gas in the world. Meanwhile, it only accounts for 3.5% of the global landmass, so it's been quite blessed. Israel didn't benefit from this bonanza. On the contrary, it had the misfortune of receiving almost none of this bounty, with the exception, of course, of a few minor oil finds and a significant natural gas find in the Mediterranean Sea in recent years. Why did this happen? Well, the unique location of the Persian Gulf, where Laurasia met Gondwana, led to the geological formations there that allowed it to become a fossil fuel mecca, so to speak. The marine shales there contained oil-prone organic matter, uh, but the land of Israel was located behind this geologically productive environment and ultimately missed out. All right, so we've been beating around the bush for long enough uh, and setting the scene. Let's get to the first humans of the land of Israel. Um, now, when it comes to humans, or what they call all of our predecessors together, uh, hominins, uh, there are a lot of resources as to their roots, the roots of, the, of their existence, how they arose, how they evolved. Uh, I won't go too deeply into that, there's plenty of books and podcasts on that topic. Um, I'd also like to add that I have quite minimal experience talking about or researching prehistory. So putting this episode together was um, a bit of a challenge. But I didn't want to skip over prehistory and go directly into the early societies of Israel. After all, humans lived in the area for over a million years. But they read and wrote for only a fraction of that time. So prehistory is the vast majority of our presence in the area. That's reason enough to pay it some attention. It's also fair to say that some of the patterns of regional society were set in those prehistoric days and have later implications. When we talk about examining prehistoric times and cultures, it's important to remember our limitations. We don't have a time machine, and we can't go back and see the cultures that existed, what they looked like, or what they did. All we have is the material evidence that those people left behind. So when we talk about a specific culture and its characteristics, what we really mean is that the archaeological evidence points to something these groups have in common, points to some changes in their technology. Um, to remind ourselves of the limitations that archaeology has, members of that profession like to say pots don't equal people, as in just because pots have something in common doesn't mean all the people who use them had something in common and vice versa. So we're using uh, the evidence the best we can. It's very limited. Now, having said that, let's take a look at what we know. The period of the first humans leaving Africa, as we know, Africa is considered the cradle of humanity, is known as the Paleolithic period. That translates to Old Stone Age in Greek. 
So about 300,000 years ago, the first humans came out of Africa. Uh, we don't actually see much variety or progress in the artifacts they leave behind until about 50,000 years ago. And so why is that? Well, when we look at the Paleolithic period, it's usually divided into three periods. The Upper Paleolithic, the Middle Paleolithic, and the Lower one. Now, human progress tends to accelerate over time. And we've certainly seen that in the 20th and 21st century. And that is also true in the Paleolithic. So the first era is much longer in comparison to the other two. In fact, um, it's about 3 million years long. Meanwhile, the Middle Paleolithic only lasted for about 50,000 years, and the Upper for a mere 38,000 years. So there was a lot of progress in those last 88,000 years in comparison to the 3 million years long period that preceded it. So if we look at the progress from, say, the Middle Period to the Upper Paleolithic, uh, professors Anna Belfer-Cohen and Ofer bar Yosef say that the difference is reflected, and I quote, through the dominance of end scrapers, burins, and blade forms, including points and backed pieces, over the characteristic late middle Paleolithic tools, which tended to be side scrapers and flake points. Of course, these kinds of tool changes, the ones that mark the differences between the eras, aren't fully implemented. It's not like you have a new iPhone come out. There is a tendency, an emphasis on the new technology at the expense of the old technology. But pockets of the old technology continue to exist. Ideas did travel at that time, but slowly and very incompletely had to be obviously face-to-face -face transmission of technology. Although in some cases, uh, the technology emerged in different time, in different places around the same time. For example, cave art seems to have emerged independently in different parts of the world around the same time. And language seems to have emerged independently in a few different areas of the world at the same time. Showing that our cognitive uh, evolution made these things possible and rather than some kind of massive eureka moment that led to that progression. Um, now, it's important to keep in mind that throughout the Paleolithic eras, Homo sapiens rarely constructed permanent settlements in the manner that we look at them today, uh, towns, etc. Instead, however, they built more prominent and sophisticated campsites, which allow them to be studied. So most of the sites that we find of the Paleolithic era are campsites, which are permanent or semi-permanent, sometimes over hundreds of thousands of years. Some of these sites contain storage pits, for example. Famously, some of them, including the ones in the area that we're looking at, include spectacular artistic representations. The best preserved among these Paleolithic remains tend to be in caves because they're protected. And that's why in the popular imagination, we refer to people of this era as cavemen. But that doesn't mean that they dwelled in caves uh, primarily. Now, let's talk about the first hominin residents of the land of Israel. Hominins are the family of human predecessors. They seem to have been Homo erectus. So, who were Homo erectus? Uh, they emerged during the lower Paleolithic era in Africa. Quite similar to us, but with a few noticeable differences. 
They had shorter arms and longer legs. In addition, they featured a protruding brow ridge, large face, and no chin. They stood upright in comparison to their ancestors, hence the name. And of course, their brains were smaller and less powerful than ours. Now, when we talk about Homo erectus, we should do so respectfully. They existed for 1.5 million years, far more than the mere 400,000 years Homo sapiens have been around. So it appears that Homo erectus was the first to reach Israel, at least as far as we know. The exact date that they left Africa is highly disputed, but let's say it was about 1.8 million years ago. Now, the leaving of Africa was probably not a dramatic event. Remember, as far as Homo erectus was concerned, they were just walking around. There, was no, there were no maps, no difference between Africa and uh, Asia. So probably Homo erectus was wandering back and forth as it was going about their attempts to feed themselves, find new habitats, um, etc. Still, eventually, they spread out of Africa not just to gain food stuff, but also to create new bases and spread out all around the world. So how do you get out of Africa? Um, there aren't too many ways to get out of Africa if you don't have a plane or a good boat. Like, just take a look at the map. The most obvious way is through Israel, what is called the Levantine Corridor. That's the major easiest way to walk from Africa into Asia, both then and now. That doesn't mean that was the only way to do so. If you look, you can see there are other areas where it, you wouldn't require much um, aquatic technology in order to get through. Uh, the Gibraltar Straits are narrow, and we definitely have evidence that hominins traversed from one side to the other. And possibly, Bab el-Mandeb saw a place where you could get from the Horn of Africa into the Arabian Peninsula. In both cases, you can see the other continent, in the case of Gibraltar, it's Europe. In the case of Bab el-Mandeb, uh, it's Asia from the shoreline, which may have inspired some to make primitive rafts or boats and go there. Uh, we know that early uh, hominins also got to Australia and other places using similar methods. Still, the Levantine Corridor is the most obvious one and probably saw the vast majority of Homo erectus that left Africa go through it. And this would be the first, but not the last time, that the land of Israel was served as a bridge for people migrating from one area to another. And it wasn't long before also humans were trading using the Levantine Corridor as well. But where were these first Israelis found? The first hominin remains were found in um, the Ubedaya caves located in the Jordan Valley not too far from uh, Kibbutz Bezerah in the Galilee. The findings there span a period of 300,000 years, from about 1.5 million to 1.2 million years ago. But the relevant experts have changed this time frame, so it may not be exact. Aside from a find in Georgia, it looks like it's the earliest non-African finding of Homo erectus ever. However, keep in mind, the finding is probably not the area of the area's earliest residents. The existence of an earlier find in Georgia would indicate that earlier versions of Homo erectus passed through the land of Israel a few hundred thousand years earlier than that, however brief their stay may have been. So no one will be too surprised if an earlier site is discovered in Israel, Jordan, or around there. 
If found, such a site would likely include less developed tools than the ones found on the site. So what was found in the caves? Um, some interesting tools, such as an, an Acheulean hand axe. That's a form of instrument named after the archaeologist who classified it. It's typified by the pear-shaped tools of the time and mainly associated with Homo erectus. Uh, aside from the tools, animal remains were also found at the site. They include the femur bone of a hippopotamus and a massive pair of horns belonging to what is believed to be an extinct species of bovid. What's a bovid? It's the family of mammals that eventually became goats and cows. Now, the site yielded hand axes of the Acheulean type, as we mentioned, but very few human remains. Um, but let's focus on the human remains anyway. A complete fragment, the only complete fragment found, was the vertebrae of a young Homo erectus, age 6 to 12, of undetermined gender. Um, for various reasons, it's assumed that it's a boy. And we'll talk about that in a second. If so, that's our first known resident of the country. What do we know about this individual? Uh, he was around 5 feet tall which is quite tall for its age, for Homo erectus. Uh, that's why the assumption is that this youngster was a male. Other remains are so fragmentary that experts couldn't tell even what family of hominins they come from. It could be Homo habilis, Homo ergaster, or Homo erectus. Uh, my Twitter followers suggested that we call this first resident of Israel Shlomo erectus. And since that's funny, I am going to stick to it. While it's certainly not the first find in prehistoric Israel, the Bnot Yaakov bridge find is probably the most important. Uh, the Bnot Yaakov bridge spans the two sides of the Jordan River, separating the Galilee from the Golan Heights. The bridge had been used for centuries by the ancient Israelites, Crusaders, Ottomans, and the British, who built a modern version in 1924. There's a ruined crusader keep overlooking the gorge. Both Saladin and Napoleon used this strategic spot as part of their glorious campaigns. But that is all comparatively recent history for this valley. You see, 790,000 years ago, humans dwelled there. And most shockingly of all, they used fire. Repeated, intentional, and responsible use of fire. Indeed, it is the first recorded use of intentional fire by any of our hominin ancestors. The site was excavated uh, quite a few years ago, from 1989 to 1997. I won't go into the story of who discovered it and how. I dislike when I am trying to learn about an era and books or podcasters go into the life story of the archaeologists who made the findings. Let's just say the people involved were, unsurprisingly, from my alma mater of Hebrew University and leave it at that. Thousands of artifacts were located at the site, indicating a significant hominin presence. The locals ate many of the animals found around there, including elephants and rhinos. Uh, they were fond of extricating the marrow from the bones of these animals and used fairly sophisticated tools in order to achieve this gourmet purpose. The Gesher Bnot Yaakov find stands out not only among um, regional archaeological findings, but global ones as well. And the reason for that is the use of fire. Now, there's no doubt that hominins used fire much earlier than those that we found in the Geshe Bnot Yaakov bridge. 
There's evidence of that in East Africa from earlier periods. We see charred remains of campfires from about 1.5 million years ago. After all, it's a naturally occurring phenomenon caused by extreme dryness or lightning. Our ancestors certainly harnessed naturally occurring fire for warmth and cooking. Fire was also superbly helpful in protecting them from predators, as we used to be much further down on the proverbial food chain. But the people living in Gesher Gnotyakov lit and used fires regularly. The archaeologists involved note that concentrations of burned flint items found in distinct areas we interpret as representing the remnants of ancient hearths. That means fire was lit in certain spots that it could be controlled repeatedly and basically on command. Once the knowledge was obtained, it was passed from one generation to the next. That surprised researchers, who until then believed that the use of fire had always been mastered about half a million years later, and shows that Homo erectus was more advanced than we initially thought. Learning to light a fire was a game-changer for Homo erectus and the future of humanity. It allowed our ancestors to expand their diets and the territories they could control significantly and overcome enemies and predators. One study concluded that the powerful tool of fire-making provided ancient humans with confidence, enabling them to leave their early circumscribed surroundings and eventually populate new, unfamiliar environments, meaning the mastery of the earth by hominins, was facilitated by the discovery of fire, which may well have been discovered in the land of Israel. Advances in the use of fire uh, from the Gesher Bnot Yaakov find have to be seen in the context of other technological advances as well. It wasn't an isolated phenomenon for the residents of the Hula Valley. Many typical tools of the era were found there, including hand axes, cleavers, flake tools, flakes, and cores. So how did these folks make their tools? They used a system called napping. That means repeatedly hitting a stone to fashion it into a useful implement. That was usually done with animal antlers or wood hammers in what must have been a painstaking process. They also developed these hammers and anvils to break open nuts and supplement their diet with much needed protein. Because there are different kinds of nuts available in the area, the hominins living in Gesher Bnotyakov had different sizes and types of hammers and anvils, suited for different types of nuts. Indeed, no less than half of the artifacts dug up on the site were hammers of one type or another. Humans and their ancestors loved nuts. So do chimpanzees, for that matter. Indeed, wherever nuts are available, they are commonly eaten by both. What types of nuts did they eat at Gesher Benot Yaakov? I am glad you asked. Some of them are no longer consumed, but here are the ones I recognized. The pistachio, the Atlantic pistachio, the wild almond, the prickly water lily, the Mount Tabor oak acorn, the water chestnut. These practices, as in breaking open nuts with hammers and anvils, are still observable observable among the remaining hunter-gatherer tribes in the Kalahari Desert. Native American tribes were also observed using a similar system. Sedentary societies would adapt the hammer and anvil into the cornerstone of future industries, such as the blacksmith variety. It's worth noting that our chimpanzee cousins have also developed similar technology. Those guys, just like us, love their nuts and want to crack them open. 
As we've already discussed, the kind of remains that we find from these prehistorical eras don't tell us as much as we'd like to know about the societies in which these people lived. But what can we learn about the society that centered at Gesher Bnot Yaakov all those years ago from these remains? Now, the fact that we found nuts there, I didn't focus on that for no reason. Usually, hunter-gatherer societies that have a lot of nuts in their diet are ones where the women and children play a large role in gathering food. Um, the evidence that we get from existing hunter-gatherer societies is that women play a very important role in gathering and breaking open nuts. Um, now, keep in mind, we're talking about hunter-gatherer societies here. We're hundreds of thousands of years away from the agricultural revolution. Nevertheless, we can still learn something about how these societies were structured, and they were probably better structured than we initially believed. One of the things that we learn from the Gesher Benot Yaakov remains is that that was used as a home base for a very long time, for about 300,000 years, really. We've already talked about the inefficiency of the nomadic lifestyle in relation to the agricultural lifestyle. The bands that lived at Gesher Benot Yaakov had to cover hundreds of miles in order to feed themselves. But how did they do it? What was their social and economic organization like? We can always theorize, and there's no need to get too technical in our analysis of hunter-gatherer societies, but let's look at the two main theories. One is sort of the instinctive theory we have of, uh, of the no these nomadic bands, that they hit the road and went where the food took them. Not a care in the world, just wandering around. Uh, a counter theory claims that while they wandered far afield, searching for sustenance, hunter-gatherer bands had a home base that they returned to. That never meant that they spent every night there, but after an expedition to get supplies, they would return and share. So a typical hunter-gatherer may return to Gesher Bnotiakov if he was in the area many times in their life. Uh, to me, the home base theory, or what it's called the central base foraging theory, makes a lot more sense. After all, humans seem to have an ingrained need to make a specific spot their home. We derive a primordial satisfaction from that, ah, I'm finally home feeling, that seems intuitive to our existence. In addition, the presence of a home base would allow individuals to trade and prepare foods with others and thereby vary their diets as well as learn new technology. Just as importantly, having a home base provides the basis for a community. That's another undeniable need for us. We are ridiculously social creatures and always seem to thrive when we have friends to bond with, rivals to gossip about, and enemies to fight. From the Stone Age all the way to Twitter, that appears to be a constant. On a more practical level, it would explain how knowledge of fire was maintained. We think of innovation as a solitary endeavor by one genius with a moment of revelation. But innovation is meaningless unless it is systematized and passed on. Professor Nira Alperson Afil explains that the data from Gesher Bnot Yaakov is exceptional as it preserved evidence for fire use throughout a very long occupational sequence. This continual habitual use of fire 
suggest that they, these early humans were not compelled to collect fire from natural conflagrations. Instead, they could make it at will. The knowledge was likely disseminated from this center. Indeed, home bases like Yesher B'not Yaakov must have served as the main repository for technology such as the use of fire intentionally. So, in conclusion, Gesher B'not Yaakov was the home for bands of Galilee-based migratory hunter-gatherers. The land of Israel would be home to many cultures and societies in the future. Over time, these societies would move from being hunter-gatherer bands to increased reliance on agriculture. The result was perhaps the most important revolution in human history, and it occurred right in Israel. We will explore the people who executed the agricultural revolution in the next episodes of the History of the Land of Israel podcast. So, subscribe now. Remember to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and join the conversation. See you next time on the History of the Land of Israel podcast. <laughs>